0: You're listening to the LB Podcast on the Harbinger Media Network. Presented by Passage, the online journal of left Canadian thought and opinion. Find it at readpassage.com. Hear great shows like Habibti Please and Bread and Poppies. Get access to exclusive shows and other supporter-only content at harbingermedianetwork.com. To a special mini episode of the lb podcast for monday november 2nd 2020 i'm your host chris markovich on this week's special episode it's movember it's a time to talk about all things related to men's health i speak with emmy-winning producer mike henneberger about his journey to the depths of despair and back again and his tell-all memoir called rock bottom at the renaissance plus I welcome Mike Reynolds from Everyday Girl Dad to the show. They tell me about their journey through redefining masculinity and how important these conversations are to them and their family. And later in the show, I welcome to the show the son of the legendary World War Two veteran activist Harry Leslie Smith. John shares with me the journey that he took with his father on his book tour, as well as his own personal journey struggling through cancer treatments. Hey everyone, I hope you all had a great Halloween weekend. But now that all the festivities are behind us, at least for those of us in Canada, we've got a long winter ahead until Christmas, and it can be a very depressing time of year, even in the best of times. So this month, I decided to take part in Movember. But what does it mean to take part in Movember other than growing a really disgusting mustache? According to the official website, Movember.com, Since 2003, they've funded more than 1,250 men's health projects around the world, shaking up men's health research and transforming the way health services reach and support men. As part of their mission statement, they exist to help men live happier, healthier, longer lives. And they're taking on all sorts of different health initiatives, like mental health and suicide prevention, prostate cancer, and testicular cancer. Now, as part of my own fundraising drive, I'll be raising donations for Movember this month, through my Twitch stream at twitch.tv forward slash cmarkplaygames. If you want to check out some cool retro games and support a good cause, I'd really, really appreciate it. And if you want to find out more about how you can raise money for Movember, check them out on their website, ca.movember.com. Joining me on the show now is an Emmy-winning producer and music journalist from such outlets as Comedy Central, Rolling Stone, Billboard, Spin, and Vice, Mike Henneberger. Thank you so much for joining me on the show.
1: Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. I'm stoked to be here. So
0: I want to start actually by asking you a little bit about your background in music journalism and producing. How did you get started with that and what led you to uh, become a music journalist.
1: Yeah, I, I, I hope I'm getting better at uh, shortening this because it really is like my whole life, I'm 38 now. And um, I think it, you know, it starts with me playing in a band, starting my first band at 14, but also just like growing up, you know, with my dad playing records and just kind of always being around, you know, people who who loved music. And so I think it just became something that was really important to me through life. And, um, so yeah, I started playing in bands when I was 14 and then when I was like 22, I stopped playing in bands and I was always like a lead singer. And so I, am not really like, I don't really play anything. Well, I play a little bit of guitar, but I couldn't just write music on my own. And my brother and I started this magazine in college called the vent and uh, part of the reason we started that was so we could like interview the bands that we liked, who weren't like their independent music and like punk rock and stuff like that wasn't really getting down to our part of Texas because it was like super south in a really small town. So we wanted to go to shows in San Antonio and Austin and interview bands and then bring that back to our, you know, our neck of the woods. So um, that's just how it started. I mean, music has always just been super important to me and um i've managed to find a way to you know work in it since i was 14 cuz even when i was like the teenager in a band i was the one managing my band i was the one booking our shows um booking our tours and stuff like that so it just it it's just what i knew i always wanted to do you know one like however i could do it i wanted to work with music um and so um yeah i I it's it's really weird. There's not like a a clear path to getting to you know the time I spent at Billboard or Rolling Stone. Um, I've just worked in media and I've worked in digital media and I've been shooting videos since I was a kid um, and you know shooting photography since I was a kid and writing since my you know early twenties. So I just I've just been doing that long enough that I've gotten good at it and. You know, I have like a bunch of interviews under my belt with big artists. So that, you know, helped me get to those like higher levels, you know, just climb higher levels every time. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's pretty much it. It's just what I've always wanted to do. So even though like I haven't really made a lot of money doing it or like it wasn't always how I made my living, it's something I've never stopped doing.
0: Now, part of your journey uh, also involves struggle, as a lot of people go through throughout their careers, but uh, you actually went um, and built this mixtape memoir of yours um, called Rock Bottom at the Renaissance. Tell us a little bit about that memoir and what that journey was like for you and what it was like to actually write and speak about it in the memoir.
1: Yeah. And I mean, that, that book pretty much covers like exactly what I was just saying about how, how music was so important to me that there's no way I, I write a book without it being about music, you know? And so this, this book is about a, a period in my life, which is like the first few years that I lived in New York and, um, you know, moved from that small town in South Texas and came up here to work, um, you know, in, in media. And it was, I had always like romanticized this city. Um, and so just from what I saw in movies and, you know, songs and books, you know, it was this place where like all my dreams were going to come true and I had these high expectations and, um, I had already, I was already struggling with uh, major depressive disorder and anxiety disorder, which I was diagnosed with when I was in the army here. Um, And, uh, so yeah, moving to New York just on my own and not really having any friends here. And, you know, there was also like, it plays a big role in that. Um, and so there was just a number of factors that really, you know, hit me hard and I didn't, I wasn't in the right, uh, headspace to deal with it in a healthy way. So the book covers a lot of, Unhealthy ways that I dealt with it, um, but yeah, I mean that that was a that was a the struggle that the book revolves around is just me dealing with you know m- my mental health issues and which I still deal with today. I mean, I wrote that I started that book in two thousand eleven, and it kind of takes place from probably two thousand eleven to two thousand fourteen, um, and so it. Uh, because for those who haven't read it, there's like flashbacks, and um, so there, and there's like a present day part to it, also. So um, yeah, it covers this period, and I just uh, um, at that point in my life, I I just didn't really have the tools. I wasn't equipped to deal with my mental health issues in a healthy way. Um, now I'm thirty. I'll be thirty eight next month um you know it's we're here 6 years later but there was still a number of years after i wrote that book that i i didn't want to put it out because i was still dealing with that stuff and i didn't want anybody to know how bad it was with me um but now um i I've, I've you know i've been seeing a therapist for a long time i finally found a good one that works for me, like that works with me um i've been taking like the right medications and you know, I try to meditate um daily and I exercise. I I basically have just been working really hard over the last you know five, six years to uh work with my mental health issues in healthy ways and that that's helped a lot. It's helped me learn how to how to manage them better. Um they're never going to go away and they're I'm never gonna be cured of those things. But I, I think I I definitely like handle them better now.
0: Yeah. Let's talk about that actually, because part of the reason that men don't talk about their feelings, their anxieties, their insecurities is because when we grow up, we're told to man up, we're told to be tough. We're yeah. told to push those feelings down because we've got to focus on being strong What changed for you, as you pointed out earlier, in not wanting to talk about it versus facing your struggles head on and becoming more open about it and
1: then eventually going public with your struggle? Well, I think the decision to not talk about it, I mean, it really wasn't, that's never really been an issue for me. Like I said, I started, I started writing songs when I was 14 And so I've always been somebody that's, like, okay with expressing my feelings. Um, Because I, yeah, I always, like, managed to put that into my songs. And so this is very much, like, a a personal view of it. And that, like, because I had that at such a young age, I was able to, like, express my feelings to audiences. I never really felt like I couldn't do that. You know, it was never it was never like taboo for me or or like it wasn't I never felt insecure or like threatened or like I wasn't a man because of that because my like initial experience with it was publicly doing it um and like getting this like validation or um you know positive reinforcement for doing it because I was doing it in good songs with my band. So I didn't really have that issue. And also it, it, I, I only realized this recently, it might have to do with like my dad not being around when I was a kid, you know, because my dad was like a Navy guy for 20 years. He was military strict dude. And, you know, he, he grew up with like, I mean, I, I don't really know the details of how he grew up, but you know, his dad was a tough guy and, they got into fights and, you know, he, he was in the military too. And then he was a trucker, like, like they're, they're man, man manly dudes. Um, and so maybe, maybe it helps that I was like raised by my mom, you know, and, um, my dad wasn't there to tell me to like stop crying or whatever. Um, and so that could be part of it too. Um, which, which is what made me com- more comfortable to, 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 put my feelings into songs when I was in bands um but when I say that I I didn't want to put the book out because of that and that was illness playing a trick on me just like addiction plays tricks on you um, and like tells you that you like need it you know um it was telling me that like I should be ashamed of how I felt or I can't let people know I feel this way or they're, you know, not going to like me or, or like, they're going to think I'm fucked up or sorry. Can I cuss on this? I've, I've listened to a few episodes, but you always talk to such professional people and they don't cuss. So I don't, I don't know if I can. That's quite all right. Okay. Um, But uh, yeah, so I think part of not wanting to put the book out when I say that is that I was starting my career here in New York Uh, in the professional sense. Whereas like everything I had done before had been like me and my brother launching our own magazine or launching our own comedy club, kind of doing stuff on our own. Um, And so I, I was uncomfortable in the new world that I was in. I didn't really know how to, how to live in it. Um, And I didn't want people to, to know that just my head was that messed up at that point. Now I don't care because now if you look at the book, the worst thing you can think about it or somebody can think about it is, wow, Mike used to be really messed up. And that's a victory for me. Like that's something I'm very proud of. You know, I'm not ashamed that I used to be really messed up because I'm not anymore. You know, I'm still sick, but I, I deal with it way, like in a much more healthy way that I'm proud that I used to be that messed up. Cause I'm not anymore. So like, it just, it just needed some time to pass for me to get into a better, a healthier state of mind for me to accept that, that that's a victory that that book, like as dark and sad as it is to see, like, even when I read it, you know, I feel sorry for the person in the book because I'm, I'm so disconnected from it now. Um, But then I get to think of what a victory it is that I'm not there anymore.
0: Now what message would you have for anyone that's listening to the show right now who's struggling to speak about any of the issues that are going on in their life and feeling like they have no one to talk to.
1: Man, I I cannot express enough the the like most surprising thing about putting this book out for me is the relief that it has given me. Um I mean I I was able to put it out cuz I felt comfortable with where I am now mentally but I didn't know I could feel even better about it and putting this book out and getting you know people sending me messages on social media and stuff and saying like that like thanking me for writing it because you know they've felt that exact same thing or they'll tell me they'll pull a specific part from the book and they'll be like this is exactly me like I love that so much. And it's relieving to me because I was still feeling a little bit scared and I was still feeling like, you know, people are going to know these things about me and that, I mean, that's scary. There's, there's some things in there, you know, that are embarrassing. Um, and that, you know, at one point I was ashamed of, um, but the relief that has come from putting it out. And just, it's, it's emphasized that I'm not alone, you know, through therapy, I've learned that I'm not alone, and that my problems aren't unique. And that, you know, in that book, I almost like I talk about at least three times where I almost died from, you know, abusing drugs and alcohol, um, and not caring if I almost died. So like, I wasn't consciously trying to commit suicide, but I knew that I could have died from what I was doing. And that's because you get this feeling that like your problems are the worst thing in the world at that time. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with thinking that, but you got to come around and see that that's, that that's not the case. And that every time you've ever felt that way before you got past it. And the only way that, you're ever going to get better or that you're ever going to, you know, get past it for good. At least that thing that you're worried about at that moment um, is if you stay alive and keep pushing through, like I've been able to do so many good, like amazing things to me, including putting this book out. And it's only because I stayed alive and like the, every chapter in the book has a song that goes with it. And those a lot of those songs in there are the songs that I turned to when I was feeling de- And I have those songs is because those songwriters who wrote about suicide and who wrote about depression stayed alive to give me those songs, you know? And so like I don't I don't wanna, you know, the message isn't write a book or write a song, but the message is if you stick around then you have something to offer somebody, you know, and you're not going to, you don't get to see the great things that happen in your life unless you get past the bad things. Um, and that's all, that's all I would say, man, there, if you, anybody who reads that book will probably be amazed that I'm talking to you right now and that the person in that book is alive. Cause I'm amazed by that. I read that and it scares me. And it, I like still, the more I've been talking to people about it, it freaks me out that like I let myself get that reckless and it scares me, man. But I, I'm glad that I didn't die. I'm very lucky. Um, and I just want like everybody who feels that bad to know that, like, if you get past it, there's, there's all this potential for feeling so much better. There's like, When you feel as bad as I did in the book, which many people do all the time, you already feel the worst you can feel because you want to die. So there's no like feeling worse, but there's so much potential for feeling better. Like if you've ever felt like you want to die, then there's no feeling worse. Like that's it. That's as bad as it gets. But then you get past it and there's so much potential for like, there's no limit to how good you can feel. Like that's the beauty of it. You just have to like, believe that and give yourself the chance to, to get there.
0: Mike Hennenberger is the author of rock bottom at the Renaissance an emo kids journey through falling in and out of love in and with New York city. You can find it wherever books are sold as well as on Amazon. Mike, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. Have yourself a great evening and stay safe.
1: Thanks man. Thanks for having me and thanks for spreading the word about the book and for doing what you're doing, man. Your, your podcast is awesome. And, and I'm glad that you, you like, Found your way, find a way to incorporate this stuff in there. I've seen that you've done it a few other times too, so thanks for that.
0: Coming up, I speak with Mike Reynolds about their journey coming out as non-binary and how they're challenging what it means to be a man and to be masculine. And later in the show, I speak with John Smith about his father's legacy and carrying on the fight for a better social safety net in Canada. Joining me now on the show is the man behind everydaygirldad.com and the So Manly podcast, Mike Reynolds. Thank you so much for joining me on the show.
2: Yes, no problem. Good to, good to be here after some scheduling fun. So,
0: Yeah, scheduling these things is always a challenge, even <laughs> when everyone is working
2: from home. Exactly, right?
0: So tell us a little bit about uh, some of your personal journey and how you started Everyday Girl Dad.
2: Um. Well everyday girl Dad has been a a long work in progress i guess um it it started um, as me kind of writing a um, a blog just to be uh, just to get myself writing to uh, you know understand creativity and everything um, and to exercise my own creativity and then it uh, turned into, as I, as I had kids, it turned into more of a parenting thing. And so I had started writing um, more before I even had kids. And when I had kids, it, it, it very quickly consumed everything, the, the whole parenting journey. And so uh, Everyday Girl Dad became at first kind of like a, um, a humorous look at parenting. And then it didn't take too long for it to take more of a, um, I guess, like a a social look at how we parent, I suppose. And it, from there, kind of just um, developed along the way as I started learning more about um, myself, the role of dad, uh, and then into... Um, some discussions around masculinity now around gender and how we teach kids and so it's it's really been as much about me learning about myself as it has been about parenting and everything so it's been it's been interesting to kind of grow myself along with the the blog and as it started out about parenting it's it's as much about um how you can learn as a parent, as it is about how you should teach as a parent. So, it's been really interesting to be able to talk about um, flaws and weaknesses and blind spots we have as parents versus what I thought parenting was going to be, which is you constantly just telling kids do this, do that, and you know learn this and learn that. So it's been it's been a lot of fun actually.
0: Now, um, speaking of your own personal journey, tell us a little bit about. How you came to identify your masculinity and also incorporate uh, some femininity into your everyday uh, persona, as well as your identity now as being non-binary.
2: Yeah. So, and this is this has been some of the things that I'm been talking about. That's so interesting. Is that as as we've been talking to our kids, this is part of why uh, for us like comprehensive uh, sex ed is so important yeah um, because there's just there's there's terms and uh, things that I just didn't have access to growing up that I'm learning now as an adult teaching my kids that um, that I'm learning about myself now i'm I'm privileged enough to work at a university and so some of the courses that I have access to take, I was able to take a course in masculinity as well. Um, And so that's where I was able to, and I'm a a student in the uh, women and gender studies program at Carleton University. So I've been able to take courses there that have helped me kind of gain some insight into masculinity and feminism because of that. And that's kind of given me, uh, you know, some academic footing into my understanding of masculinity and what I try to, um, write about and everything. But in terms of my individual relationship with masculinity, it's mostly just, you know, understanding, um, my own relationship to things like, um, you know, labor around the house and everything and, uh, making sure that, um, those conversations are ongoing and everything. And when it comes to realizing that I am non-binary, that's where it's been that uh, education piece that I realized when I was talking to my kids about these things is that these are things that really stuck with me along my own childhood journey that I was like, holy cow, if I had had access to this information growing up, Uh, this would have been really valuable to me and it's not information that my parents withheld from me it was just information that they simply also weren't being provided that also wasn't available to them and so uh, whenever I see people talking about um, you know parents as the only provider of sexual and health information and everything it it always, to me, does speak to that being a super privileged point of view as well, because um, not everyone has equal access to all of this information as well. And so, it's uh, it's something that uh, we're very passionate about making sure that schools and other you know avenues of information sharing are available for everybody. So,
0: what did that mean to you to be able to finally put? something concrete to how you've been feeling about yourself about your relationship with, you know, your family and with friends and how did it inform your decisions to speak with your kids about it?
2: Um, I mean, even today it continues to be a little bit, uh, nerve wracking, I suppose. I mean, it's very freeing on one hand, but it is also, uh, I think any, Identity work, Um, I will just speak for myself, but any identity work that I do for myself is also uh, very scary. Um, I do always, uh, I I love being able to express myself in ways that I feel more comfortable doing, but I also do always, you know, I I do always want to make sure that I'm doing things that feel most comfortable for me and it's it's interesting that the more myself I am the more aware of kind of the way society pushes back on folks that there is and it is it does it's a really interesting way to be able to experience privilege I suppose and now I still have heaps of that I'm still um yeah. So like if you, if you do look at any kind of Instagram posts that I share of, you know, me putting on makeup or me sharing posts like that, I, um, I'm very positively received in a community that I've built. I mean, if it makes it into kind of straight Instagram or something, uh, it, it does definitely get, uh, pushback and everything, but I've learned to be able to straight like stay away from those comments. But, Um, but if you look at other people, um, you know, women who just simply don't wear makeup for a while will get criticized for not wearing makeup and everything. So I, I have built a community where I, I do have a lot of support for what I, uh, for the ways that I am expressing myself and understanding that there is a lot of, um, privilege even just being able to do that. But, um, there is also... You know, I wouldn't lie that there isn't a little extra fear when I walk outside with makeup on and stuff, so it's been interesting to be able to experience that.
0: How has your journey up to this point changed, if any change has happened? Uh, your relationship uh, with your spouse, with your kids, um, with your family—have they been, you know, very supportive? Has anyone else come up to you and said, "I didn't know that you felt this way" or that this was who you were? Or did they know? Like, did they have any sort of inkling that this is how you were feeling all along?
2: Um, no, I don't think people knew for sure, and I think that that again might be part of a general lack of understanding around what being non-binary means as well um it has been fairly well received by family in general i mean um my mom has bought like a book about what being non-binary means and everything so it's been it's been nice to be um to have that kind of reception and to be well received like that uh these are things that we have talked about with our kids this is the nice thing about growing up and raising our kids in a way that this kind of um, terminology and these kind of concepts and ideas aren't new to them. So bringing, uh, like, they have always known and been aware of non-binary people and trans folks and everything. So it's not something that is a foreign idea to them. Um, it's certainly, changed in ways that i mean i i struggle with my own pronouns sometimes so there have been pronoun struggles sometimes and and that it doesn't really uh bother me at all so there's those things that that we have adapted to and it's been small things like like that but i've only come out since like in quarantine basically so it it's interesting to uh to try to understand what things might look like in a couple of years from now uh whenever we're back to being out around people again um cuz things are so different and things have been so kind of confined to um bubbles at this point and so we've we've built kind of such a a small community of support, which has felt really good to me. And I don't really, I don't feel too afraid of expanding that because obviously I have a, I'm not, it's not that I'm quiet about it online or anything, but there is a, there, there's some kind of, I don't think it's reluctance or anything, but there's some worry or concern about what will happen when the in-person world is, is brought to me again, right? So that's the, the people that, that know and that we interact with in person right now have been great, and the people online have been great. So it'll be interesting um, to see what happens once we are out in the in person world again and interacting with people. So,
0: how has your view changed or been, um, or how has it evolved over the last? number of months or years that you've been on this journey to affect how you view masculinity now versus how you viewed it before? Like what does masculinity mean to you now?
2: Yeah. I think that one thing that I am trying to grow in understanding is how personal masculinity is. And I think that if there's one thing that I can um, try to understand is that or the one thing that I have done my best to understand is that one's relationship to masculinity is their own. Right. And so um, everyone will, I mean, there is hegemonic masculinity that we all try, that we're all supposed to be working to attain and everything, but there's, there's the masculinity that we all want to express and the, it's kind of what i've really learned a lot is that when we feel supported and when we have people that are around us who are comfortable in letting us do what we want more often than not the people i've interacted with like putting a lot of the prescribed masculinity traits away and trying new things um trying to be, you know, less aggressive, trying the more, uh, you know, gentler things, the softer side of masculinity. And it's been, uh, this has been a lot of growing up in like a, and a lot of what I've done admittedly is built a pretty safe and soft bubble for myself and everything from um, the fatherhood community that I've built all the way up to right now with the, with the queer community that I've built and everything. And um, the men that I interact with are very uh, kind and compassionate people and kind of seeing that um, that side of masculinity shown has been incredibly valuable to me to see um, that kind of displayed so uh continually and it's also really important for me um for people to be uh for people to admit that they have taken up space for too long and to be the the one thing that I like seeing the most is people uh stepping back and learning more and because that's one thing that I continue to try and do for myself is to understand that one of the biggest things I can do is kind of unlearn a lot of the things that I picked up growing up, not through textbooks or anything, but just learned behavior and everything from movies and uh, people around me and just the stuff that, you know, men were supposed to do kind of uh, traits. And I think that when I see other men who are willing to say, uh, I'm going to kind of take a step back here and, and kind of say there's probably a lot of things in me that I need to uh, unlearn right now versus saying, you know what I want to do here is lead people forward. Um, I really appreciate when people are willing to say um, the masculinity that I'm showing right now is hurting people and I need to be able to uh, get rid of some of that.
0: What advice would you have for other men and other mask presenting folks that might be listening to the show right now who are going through this sort of journey that uh, you've been going through?
2: Yeah. Some of the, some of the things that I've really enjoyed personally has been trying things that I, that I had wanted to try. So one of the big things for me, one of a I guess, turning point kind of moments for me was when I started cross stitching. Um, it was one of those, uh, moments where, I mean, it seemed like a pretty simple activity at the moment to just try. And, um, cross stitching for me just became like, it was more a mental health activity at the time of just kind of consuming my mind. And it, it ended up becoming this kind of, it was almost the more I was, it, and again I was it ended up getting a lot of uh praise from people who because it was really you know rare for people to see someone with a beard cross-stitching and everything but it was it was it was also really interesting because people like men weren't always as up on seeing that and it was it was fun to kind of challenge norms in that way um and then with makeup more recently, in it, It's hard, but it's fun to kind of um, challenge and do things that you want to do um, because you think you deserve to do them, because you do deserve to do them. And I think that that's something that can be really hard to uh, give your brain as a present, but but it is something that you can do for yourself is to just admit that you deserve something and to kind of give it to yourself.
0: Mike Reynolds is a writer, speaker, and a podcaster. You can find them on Twitter at Everyday Girl Dad and also on their website, everydaygirldad.com. Thank you so much for being on the show today and uh, stay safe and enjoy the rest of your day.
2: Awesome. Thank you very much.
0: Coming up, I speak with John Smith, the son of the legendary war veteran, Harry Leslie Smith, about some of the projects and causes that his father championed throughout his life and the steps that John is taking to honor his legacy.
3: Some have called my generation the greatest, but I don't believe that, or otherwise, income inequality, poverty, and war would now be exhibits in a museum here in Ottawa. My generation built a strong social safety network. We created universal health care and public pensions and we built affordable housing and demanded that education was everyone's right. We enacted laws to protect workers, families our youth from misfortunes caused by power being concentrated in too few hands. Sadly, my generation's greatest achievement, the welfare state, has become tarnished by the politics of austerity espoused by right-wing demagogues. But if we don't return to the principles of social and economic justice that my generation established through the social safety network. My past will become your future.
0: His father spent the last years of his life when he was in his 90s fighting to end the refugee crisis. He was dubbed the world's oldest rebel by the media for his never surrender attitude when it came to fighting against injustices. His book is called Harry's Last Stand, And his son, John Smith, joins me on the show now. Thank you so much for joining me.
4: Thanks very much for having me. I'm really happy to always talk about my dad and his legacy and what we're still continuing to do in his name.
0: Yeah, so tell us a little bit about his journey uh, in the last years of his life and what that was like uh, being on tour with him and listening to him speak and the impact it had on so many people.
4: Sure. It it all began uh, around 2009. Uh, just after the economic crash, because my my older brother had taken ill with something called pulmonary fibrosis, and my brother had had uh, my brother was had been dealing with schizophrenia, and all of these other things, which was a horrible disease to have under Mike Harris's government, and all of those things prior to that. Anyways, my dad and I were actually living in Portugal at the time, and we came back to take care of my brother. My brother died. That was absolutely gutting for my dad, and. I had to figure a way of getting him back into the world. And he was very angry, very grief-stricken. And I told him, why don't you start writing about your early life? Because he had a terrible life in Britain where he grew up. He, he was from a coal mining community and he lived in slums and, and he, he suffered horrendously, as most people did during the Great Depression. His was more profound than most. Uh, he suffered malnutrition, starvation, beatings, all of these other things. And because of all of those things, He used it at at the age of around 88. He started writing his first book, which was about his early life, and he started exploring more and more writing essays and all of this. Until in 2013, he wrote an essay on Facebook, of all places, about the National Health Service in Britain. It 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 went viral to such an extent uh, that a British publisher said, I need you to write a book about your life and about your, your politics, because his politics were the politics of socialism, the politics of of, of community, the, the politics of, of what our, our, our parents and grandparents lived through in the 1930s and 40s that made them believers in social justice, in the rights of everybody to housing, to education, to health care. So all of those things happened and it propelled him onwards onto the stage in Britain uh, to, to a great extent. And he addressed uh, the 2014 labor party conference where he gave a a monumental speech, probably, and and I'm being biased, but many people have also said this probably one of the best political speeches at a political convention in the 21st century, at least. And it tore apart the idea uh, that we have to live in a conservative Tory world. That there are better things for all of us, that we all have a right to a prosperous life that is free of want, free of uh, poor health, and that it galvanized the Labour Party in Britain. They didn't win the 2015 election, but it did set them on the way to Corbyn and Jeremy Corbyn. So all of this was going on. My dad was Working in the United Kingdom, traveling across the United Kingdom, speaking about it. But he also took a uh, tour of Canada with the Broadbent Institute in 2015 and traveled across the country bringing his message. Because he, he was both a Canadian and a Brit. He had spent a large part of his adult life in Canada, building the Canadian dream for his family and his, for his friends in Toronto, in the suburbs of Toronto, in Scarborough. and Scarborough. And, and a lot of his sensibilities were also developed not only in Britain, but in Canada with Tommy Douglas and, and, and the NDP. And also just the idea that he helped also forge an NHS in the United Kingdom, but also in Canada in the 1960s. So all of these things moved him when he was in his 90s. To say we have to make a stand, because if we don't, we are going to have my past. And, and this is what, what, what began as the Harry Last Stand Tour. And it also infuriated him when he saw the refugee crisis explode in 2015 uh, after the, uh, the, the Syrian civil war, and, and that nobody was doing anything. And he, he, what he saw was something that w- was as profoundly disturbing as what he had seen in 1945 as part of the RAF moving into, uh, into Germany. And there they encountered the diaspora of Europe, but also labor camp, uh, uh, ex-labor camp prisoners, uh, uh, Jewish refugees from concentration camps and all of these things. And, and that profoundly affected him as a 22-year-old man. In fact, he said that it was the most horrendous thing that he saw in the war, was the absolute destruction of humanity for the civilian population. And and that galvanized him again in his 90s to fight for the right of refugees to be welcome anywhere and everywhere. And for Western nations to pick up the slack, which we haven't, we haven't done it in Canada. We, they certainly haven't done it in the United Kingdom. Germany did some very helpful things at the initial start of the the, uh, of the the refugee crisis with the Syrian civil war, but it was a giant grand gesture that they were only gonna do once. And since nobody else picked up the slack, and we can say that Canada did its bit, but it really did We picked, we cherry picked the best of the refugees, which is, and, 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 it, and I'm very happy that we saved so many lives but it was more a very small gesture and we should be doing more. So all of these things. And the most amazing thing is you've got this guy in his 90s. He's not in his 50s like I am, or his 60s or 70s. He is nearing the end of his life. And he goes, I don't want to sit by the wayside and and allow this terrible evil, which is neoliberalism, uh, the convergence of corporatism, and all of these things to come and just wipe out everything. So that it would be his grandchildren's generation that has to become the greatest generation, like his generation, to try to resort things up. He wanted to make sure that we would actually have some some benefits in our lives and that democracy could flourish. Uh, I, I think I, I think it was a well spent last ten years of his life, and I was very proud to be part of of all of the, all of his endeavors, and and I, I'm. I'm incredibly proud that I, on his deathbed, the uh, the minister for, for refugees and immigration came to visit him. I mean, he was in hospital in Belgrade, and my my dad said, you know, and 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 the minister was very lovely in that sort of thing. You know, it was it was it was a private visit, not a, uh, uh, a governmental visit. But my dad said to him, he, he, my dad was probably, I think, dead within seventy-two hours of that meeting. He said, "You should go." And really help the refugees because there's nobody that can help them. And and it was that you know that all the way through, even to the last days of his life, he he understood that he could be used, or that he could use his experiences uh, to make things better for people.
0: Yeah, I like that you bring up the the um, the fact that even at the end of his life, he was still focused on the issues that mattered, yeah. and we see this across the world with folks that are in their 70s and 80s, et cetera, still going to protests, still willing to stand up against injustices. I was looking on social media, I think it was yesterday or today, and we've been seeing what's been happening in Belarus. Yep. There was a 74-year-old woman who was being accosted by you know, police or secret yep. police or some forces that were trying to take her into a van, and she was fighting them off. And you know, a group of women came in and protected her. Yeah. But we see this all the time with folks that are standing up for issues that matter. There's a climate protester, uh, I believe, yeah. he's in the U.S. He's, uh, I think, in his late 80s or early 90s, and has been arrested, I think, five or six times. Yeah. For protesting against climate change, and th- you know, the, the police keep taking him to yeah, detain him, and he keeps going back. Yeah. And I was at the Kinder Morgan protests uh, three years ago in Burnaby. And there was a gentleman there who was in his late 70s and several other women with him that were in their late 60s, early 70s that had been protesting against uh, climate polluters for decades. And they were willing to risk arrest to do so. And part of the conversation that seems to get lost is the fact that just because government policy changes from par- one party to another or because one government gets elected or another government gets elected doesn't mean the issues go away they're still there and they have been there for generations now and the generations that have been fighting for you know social change like your father like yourself and others that are coming up on their golden years are trying to impress upon the rest of us that these issues are not going away they're only going to get worse and part of the issues that are getting worse have to do with the effects that, as you put it, refugees are having to bear the, the, the brunt yeah. of because they have no agency when it comes to climate change because they're part of nations that have been plundered by imperialist nations like the UK, like the US and France and, Canada to and an others. And for, Canada is very agency. complicit in those. Yeah. And I go into that in my last episode about free trade agreements and about NAFTA and about how our governments don't seem to care about the working people. And your father was one of the biggest critics of that policy.
4: Well, And this is what I love because the, the simple fact was, and, and what he would not tolerate uh, is for him, because he, he fought against, he he, he was very youthful in his fight because, I I mean, he was very proud of his service in the RAF during the war, but he wasn't going to wear a poppy or do any of these things that were going to promote wars that were all across the board. The modern wars are not about freedom, democracy, or anything like that. They are about corporate profits, hegemony, and all of these issues, but they are never about fighting evil. It may sort of come in on the sidelines now and then, and a convergence of convenience, but it rarely is. And and that's why, you know, and, the, and this is the thing, that um, that why it, it is really important, and I think, and I, and I, I am always uh, uh, absolutely amazed uh, by older people in their 80s and 90s that will go to the line, because they're, they're usually frail in health anyways, or to, to a certain degree, they're, they're more diminished than we would be, and that they are willing to risk a lot just to say we can't do this anymore. We have to, whether it's environmental issues, whether it's uh, issues with corporations, whether it's issues with geopolitics. We can't do these things anymore. We have reached our limit, and th- and this is the problem, which I I, I think that w- what I didn't even see in 2015 or or even then that there was a point where you're going okay, it's really bad, but we can change it. We can shift. And now I think we're right against the wall. And 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 it's one of those things that if we don't make this decision within a year, we are going to go off, off the cliff face, whether it's, whether it's fascism, whether it's environmental destruction and all of these things. Because I keep on hearing, you know, the thing is, is that we need a Green New Deal. And we need a Green New Deal that is actually a Green New Deal, not something concocted by public relations people. And, and where my fear is also with that is, is that it's hard enough to get people to wear masks. How do you get people to actually shift the entire economy? Because we have to stop being consumers. We have to make the economy work, not where it is this, 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 this concept where it has to have continuous growth. Because we've reached that point. We have no more ceiling. The earth has no more ceiling to this. So we have to shift, and this is why socialism is the only answer to at least mitigate what's going on, and give us at least some breathing time to reinvent ourselves.
0: Let's talk now about uh, your personal journey and how it's how the book tour and how being alongside your dad for all those years throughout his odyssey affected you, and well, what's been going on for you lately. Because I know that you know a along with dealing with his uh, personal and health issues, you've come across some of your own.
4: Tell us about that. Well, I I mean, I, I, I didn't expect, uh, after, after my dad died in November of 2018, I, I had expected to use 2019 to complete some of his tour, finish up my book about him and all of those things. And it, it was also a way of expiating my grief. And, uh, i I throughout that year, I was feeling very unwell and I just put it down to exhaustion right and going at stress exhaustion grief and in December of last year, I was in the u k for the election for their general election, and I knew then that there was something i, I it was just that where normally everybody that's in politics and that sort of thing As an advocate knows these 12 hour days and they're usually generally exhilarating and these things and and i would be doing them and being dead tired where i'd be falling asleep uh you know right when i hit my hotel pillow sort of thing so when i got back home i was scheduled for a colonoscopy and uh the uh the uh, they, they found a tumor anyways and i and i, I like the the doctor said well we found a growth i said okay I said, well, what are the percentages that that growth is going to be cancer? He goes, we don't like to say it. I go, well, you just tell me, right? And he said, oh, I, he said, I, I think it's 90%. Going, so I, I had a good idea before Christmas that it would be cancer. It was, it was diagnosed officially in January 2020 that I had rectal cancer. And I, I, I went and I had, my, I had to have radiation done in Toronto in March during the pandemic which is the weirdest thing where you come in and Toronto, there's nobody there. It is like a science fiction movie. And, and I, I had to go to Sunnybrook for radiation and everybody is in basically hazmat suits. And they, they did my radiation. And then the, the, the following week, I was supposed to go back to Toronto to have my uh, surgery. But they canceled it 48 hours before my surgery to begin with. Because of the pandemic, and then fortunately, they they reversed their decision, and I had my operation done March twenty seventh, and I will tell you that yeah, the I I was not expecting the it, it it I I I had not anticipated how difficult getting over cancer is. I mean I'm getting there and that sort of thing, but it is it is a unique uh, individual journey that everybody takes. That, that gets gets ill with anything, I guess, and it it it's it, it's been more interesting because of the pandemic, but also it's made me very laser focused on what I need to do now. I all odds are they got the cancer out. I can probably knock wood, get on with my life after recovery, more or less. Now, I, they, they, I there will be a greater chance of it coming back, but more or less, I should be able to to get on with this, but. It, it has made me laser focused in the idea that my father's legacy should not die with me, that there is that, that there is a profound story to tell uh, with him to continuously go both in Canada and in the United Kingdom because he straddles both countries. And this is what I, I am spending all of my time doing and will until I am no more, is making sure that not only his story is told, but the story of his generation and our generation uh, And how we have to make things better. Because if we don't, we're not going to survive as a species. And even if we did survive as a species, we we, as individuals will live as slaves.
0: Harry Leslie Smith was an author, one of the last remaining survivors of the Great Depression and the Second World War. The book is called Harry's Last Stand, How the World My Generation Built is Falling Down and What We Can Do to Save It. You can find it wherever books are sold as well as on Amazon. His son, John Smith, is also a writer and a political activist. You can find him on Twitter at Harry's Last Stand. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. I wish you well and stay safe. Enjoy the rest of your day.
4: Thank you very much. I had a great time.
0: Like what you've heard on the show? Consider becoming a patron and get exclusive access to early content, extras, and more. Visit patreon.com forward slash left behind podcast to subscribe today well that's it for this special episode of the lb podcast i'd like to thank john smith mike reynolds and mike henneberger for being guests on the show this week as well as all of our supporters on our patreon page and all of our followers on social media don't forget to check out our brand new website lbpodcast.ca as well as the new Harbinger Media Network on their website, harbingermedianetwork.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Farewell, comrades.